Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm really obsessed with the question of what are we going to do at the next time there's a recession? How can we do a better job than we did during the Great Recession? Uh, Indy Dedegupta is the co-executive director of the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality. Uh, he thinks about a, a lot of questions related to this, but he has some really smart ideas about how to prepare for the next recession, for the subsidized job program. Next time a recession comes, you are going to regret not having listened to this. So check it out. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Indy Dedegupta, is the co-executive director of the Georgetown Center for Poverty and Inequality. He recently published a, a proposal that, that I thought was fascinating. It's about um, using subsidized jobs uh, through the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program as a way to, to fight recessions. Uh, this was part of a, a broader collection of essays on the idea of, like, how can we get more prepared for a new recession. And so I think a good place to start in this is like, what is TANF and why doesn't it it really work as a stabilizing mechanism right now? Great question. So TANF is what a lot of people think of as welfare. In practice, the program, the initial stand for Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, is essentially a block grant from the federal government to states. In other words, the federal government shifts large amounts of money to states with enormous flexibility given for them to meet a set of broad purposes. In practice, uh, we'd love to see a program like that lead to people really getting what they need. And by and large, we're talking about serving people who have children, who are struggling in the labor market, who may have multiple and serious barriers to employment, like partial disabilities that don't quite qualify for our disability benefits programs, mental health challenges, struggling with intimate partner violence, and a whole host of things. The program, unfortunately, has been really, really inadequate, to say the least, uh, since its inception in 1996. So this is this is the program that comes out of welfare reform, right, for people's context. Sure. I like to refer uh, to it as just the 96 welfare law did so many other things. It also got our uh, now SNAP program that was called food stamps. But you're exactly right. 1996, uh, it's hard to imagine, but 
welfare, and I'm showing air quotes here for those who can't see it, was at the top of the American people's list of priorities. And partly that was drummed up, of course, in no small part due through all sorts of racialized myths. Mm -hmm. And so we had this huge uh, undertaking that led to Congress taking lots of actions um, and eventually— President Clinton signed one of the bills mm-hmm. after two vetoes. And so and so a key thing about this, right, a, a lot of our other safety net programs, Medicaid for health care, SNAP for, for nutrition assistance, they have a – it's called an entitlement program structure. So if you meet the eligibility criteria, you get money, and that then means that in a recession, when sort of need increases, more money flows out, and then that helps sort of – stabilize the the overall economic situation. But TANF gives cash benefits, among other things, which could be very useful, but it doesn't have that entitlement structure, right? It's the federal government gives a flat amount of money every year, right? And then states are supposed to kick in other money, but they, like, they cut spending when there's recession. That's right. So first of all, cash assistance is just a fraction of what TANF funds can be used for and are used for. Secondly, TANF has had a fixed level of federal funding nominally, not even adjusted for inflation. And as we, many of us who work in Washington uh, national policy know, states by and large have statutory constitutional requirements to balance their budget. So who's really the savior when things take a turn for the worse economically? It's really the federal government that has to kick in. And unfortunately, TANF is not well equipped as it as it stands right now to do that. And sure enough, we saw that in the last recession where it took uh, really emergency legislation to uh, make sure it did anything. Right. So because, because of that nominal fixation, right, it's like, in effect, the federal government is giving less and less, right? So it, it gets less effective over time. And states, even like lots of states, just do so little. And, and even the ones that like want to do more, exactly when the needs hit, they have the least capacity. Yeah, there's been a 40% decline in the uh, value uh, adjusted for inflation of the federal block grant since its inception. Precisely when unemployment is rising, states are cutting their spending. So uh, we we know the answer here. Um, it's just a decision that, you know, we failed to make to kick in federal support for programs like TANF, which is so well targeted. You're going to get huge multipliers, right, economically from getting money to these families who are some of the worst off, most vulnerable to recessions. Right, because, I mean, you're talking really about people in the the most dire economic straits, right? People who are essentially guaranteed to spend out any dollar that they get on very basic household necessities. We're talking about people who are essentially in something like uh, what you might consider deep poverty, typically below half to three-quarters of the poverty line. Uh, Even with TANF cash assistance, they're not going to come out of poverty. This is just about meeting the most foundational basic needs like small amounts of food, household goods, diapers, menstrual products. We're talking about the basics of the basics that uh, will immediately be purchased, uh, meeting rent, of course. Um, So that's exactly right. It's hard to imagine a better way to inject money into the economy. So what happened during the Great Recession? So during the Great Recession, TANF responded very slowly and very modestly and Fortunately, uh, in the Recovery Act, Congress and the Obama administration established a TANF emergency fund. 
essentially a one-time $5 billion fund that, among other things, was funding more one-time cash or basic assistance and also subsidized jobs. Uh, These are essentially jobs where the government helps offset part of the cost of hiring people who, in theory, wouldn't otherwise have been hired by and large and in positions that, in theory, otherwise wouldn't have existed by and large. And we saw states uh, do their very best and ramp up in earnest, and over a quarter million jobs were paid for in part by this emergency program. But at the same time, it was quite clear that states uh, that didn't participate and relied on the basic TANF program in some cases were actually reducing the number of people they were serving. Amidst you know, more than doubling of the unemployment rate, the deepest recession anyone had seen in half a century, Uh, So it really, in some ways, revealed the structural flaws in TANF and also potentially a path forward. Mm -hmm. And that's where my proposal comes in. Okay, so let's talk about some of the structural flaws before we before we get into the fix so that so that people understand it. Like what's 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 wrong with this as as it exists beyond just being kind of stingy? So TANF doesn't allow states to respond properly to emergencies, whether economic, growing extreme weather and other disasters you're going to see because of climate change, demographic change. So over time, some states might just have growing need because of changing of the population. So a younger population, for example, might have a greater need for TANF since it's targeting families with kids. Because of the formulas and the fixed uh, federal block grant, where they really tie some of the funding to 1996 data, Mm -hmm. uh, which really makes no sense here in 2019 and probably didn't even make that much sense in 2001, TANF uh, in no way really aligns with need. That is the central flaw with TANF and really with block grants. They do not align funding with need. Mm -hmm. And so so Congress had stepped in with a kind of like a a one-off what 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 they could have done and didn't do was create a sort of like a like a permanent emergency right to say like now we have a way that TANF is going to deal with emergencies in a systematic way instead they just sort of came in with with like one like truck full of money yeah there was a lot of conversation during the great recession even among progressives who wanted active government intervention who said we really need to make all of these measures temporary, right? right? Time limited. Um, And in some ways, uh, you could see how that made sense. But in other ways, uh, it was really the opportunity to set these programs straight. We really took for granted the fact that we were even able to act in the robust fashion Mm -hmm. that we were. As much as the Recovery Act fell short of what a lot of people thought was needed, it did at least seem to largely offset the massive reductions in spending from state and local government. And the Recovery Act passed with basically a supermajority in the Senate, Democratic House as well, and Democrat in the White House. Historically, if Republicans control any parts there, all you're going to see is tax base or maybe some Social Security one-time checks as strategies, tax-based strategies or one-time checks from Social Security. So this was really uh, our chance, and policymakers at the time were really focused on putting out the fire rather than ensuring that um, we're ready for future ones. And I think the other thing we can really appreciate clearly now that maybe 10 years ago people didn't quite see is how low interest rates would continue to be, right? I mean, right now, we're not in a recession. The unemployment rate's quite low. We seem we seem far from 
the bottom of the economy. But interest rates have gone up nowhere near where they had been. So it's there's not that much that can be done in terms of interest rate cutting. And it seems pretty clear that hopefully there won't be a recession soon. But if there is, it looks very likely that we're going to need big fiscal measures. And that's why it's important to talk as soon as we can about, like, what those could look like and how we can deal with this in a more kind of systematic way. That's right. We don't know what the political circumstances will be like, but it is quite clear from a macro perspective that we're going to have to rely even more heavily on fiscal measures the next time around. And I just want to emphasize also that typically we respond way too slowly to recessions. The last time around, uh, by the time we had extended unemployment insurance benefits, uh, we now know, if you go by the National Bureau of Economic Research's sort of business cycle dating, that we were about six months into the recession. Here's the thing. That may sound slow, and in many ways it was for real people and their families. That was the fastest unemployment insurance extension we've ever had in U.S. history. In some recessions, we waited till the recession ended before we even acted. So uh, we really need these automatic stabilizers in place to ensure that we stabilize the families and communities uh, that need it as soon as possible. Okay, so let's take a break and then and then let's get to let's get to what the proposal is because that's that's the good stuff. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Well, let's hear it. What what should we do? How can we how can we make TANF an effective recession fighting tool? Well, one of the challenges with TANF is that states have such an expansive potential 
set of ways that they can spend the money, and some of them are clearly uh, much more defensible than others. For example, some states have even spent the money on scholarships for people in families with six-figure incomes. Uh, so not great. That's not great, right? I don't think that's what anyone thinks about uh, when they think about helping families uh, who are struggling in our economy. So I suggest that we focus at least the counter-cyclical aspect of TANF on two things. One is cash assistance, because there's no doubt that people will need that, they will use it, that it's good for the economy, it'll stabilize families and communities, increasing research on long-term gains for kids who are exposed to cash assistance, and subsidized jobs. Now, one of the things I just want to emphasize there is that it is about jobs, but it's also about the wraparound supports and services that will help people access and maintain those jobs. Mm -hmm. That could be childcare. That could be transportation assistance. That can even, in some cases, be mental health services. Right, because, I mean, you're talking about the ten of population. You're talking about people who not only don't have jobs, but who are really having trouble getting work, right? I tend to think about folks in a very uh, strong labor market, where we still have to remember we have huge racial disparities even in the strongest labor markets. But I tend to think about, at least uh, relative to a bad labor market, that those folks typically will have other barriers to employment. I do think that when the economy really turns downhill, that uh, there'll be more and more folks who become eligible, who, of course, really just need help with that job. Um, in some cases, maybe keeping a job as you can achieve through uh, work sharing and shared work through unemployment insurance. And in other cases, just reconnecting them, you know, as quickly as possible to a job. Right. But I mean, you know, if you're talking about people who maybe, you know, haven't had jobs in a while, who probably have childcare needs, who, because they're poor, don't have a great reliable means of transportation, and who often have real, real struggles, right? And so you're going to need some services to make sure that people are, I guess, have the best possible chance of, like, actually doing a job and and holding it, even, even when you can help them find one. Yeah, we all fall on some spectrum from, you know, but for a job uh, being available, we're okay, mm-hmm. to we need lots of preparation and support. And in theory, TANF's going to be helping a lot of people who Uh, have caregiving and other responsibilities and other challenges that a job might help with, but a job alone, especially we're talking about pretty low-paid jobs, uh, will be insufficient. I I, I do want to note that um, very few people go long periods in America without any work, Mm -hmm. uh, with the exception of maybe during lengthy recessions. People are just in and out of really low-paid work. It's so intermittent. They're not going to qualify for unemployment insurance because they collect, uh, you know, a few weeks or several hours here or there. But you know, employers of low-paid workers, by and large, uh, treat them still as they're quite disposable. This is an interesting point that I think a, a lot of people don't know. But when you see people with, with these very low earnings, right, it's usually because they've had uh, jobs for just a small portion of the year or very little kind of hours in there, right? And, and then the unemployment insurance, all those other things are geared to you obtaining full-time work that you then lose. So this fills in a kind of a kind of a gap there. So so how would it work? I mean, what what does a subsidized job mean? Because we have some experience with this. Yeah, so we have uh, decades of experience with subsidized jobs. And obviously, we created a bunch through the Recovery Act's TANF Emergency Fund. So this can be something as uh, sort of entry level as working at your goodwill. And it can be something as sort of competitive as we call it or unsubsidized as entry-level administrative work or even a home health aid. 
One of the neatest sort of demonstrations of this was something done under the old welfare program called AFDC, or Aid to Families with Dependent Children, where disproportionately women, disproportionately uh, women of color, essentially got uh, a couple weeks worth of training, shadowing uh, homemaker and home health aid, and then got to do that job in a subsidized job. And not only did we see the obvious gains of people earning more while this subsidized job was available, but we saw long-term gains, which you do see in some cases, not all for sure, but it really shows that there's a lot of potential for the strategy. Wait, so long-term gains means you... Greater learn. earnings, greater employment, right. um, and and that doesn't have to be the purpose, right? So uh, some in some ways, the purpose is just let's stabilize the family, stabilize the community, let's get money out the door, right? And you know, people joke, but that's really uh, you. You could just sort of put put money in the right communities, and I think you're going to see some benefits one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, uh, people want work. That's one of the striking things about subsidized jobs programs is whenever we've really made them available in earnest, you get wait lists. You get people signing up, uh, young people, uh, working age adults. You get people signing up way beyond what slots are available. So it's one of the things that's clearly been demonstrated. And that, that's regardless of the economy. There mm-hmm. are just we have, We've never really created enough jobs for everyone who wants one. Right. And you you can see that today, right? I mean, so the unemployment rate is is low, uh, but there's still a non-trivial number of people say that they are part-time for economic reasons. There's people who have dropped out of the labor force but seem like they want to come back in. And you and you routinely see like the African-American unemployment rate being about double what it is for, for, for whites. Um, people with lower levels of education still have very high unemployment rates. And uh, it seems like there are more people who, you know, are of regular working age and uh, would would like to have jobs. We still have a huge number of people in this country with some sort of a hit on a criminal background check. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you'll see a story, new story here and there when the economy is as it appears today. Look, employers are finally starting to hire. I mean, what's our plan here that people with a criminal record get jobs for two years out of every 10? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Right, right, right. I mean, so this is, you'll see news stories now, yeah. right, that employers yeah. are sort of stretching right. on, on candidates they would ordinarily ignore. And your question is, well, so like, what's the ordinary right. solution? And, and, and even now, just to be clear, they're not going to hire everyone. Right. Uh, you know, we're distinguishing between anyone who has any violent, any history of violent crime versus people who don't. I mean, there's always some way that we sort of exclude people. And I think we need to sort of own up to it. And uh, part of the answer is, of course, income supports and income transfers. But I think part of the answer here is absolutely that we can create subsidized jobs, uh, which, by the way, can be private or public and including with nonprofits, Mm -hmm. um, and I think can really be meaningful and also potentially give some people a path to a stronger foothold in the labor market and, you know, regardless, be good for their families. So so what are we talking about here exactly? So in a a subsidized job, I'm the employer, and so I pay you— a wage, but then the government is paying me back for for part of that wage, and that's the subsidy? Sure. The government might even pay you back for more than the full cost of the wage to help cover some overhead and Mm -hmm. fringe benefits. But you might be the employer here at Vox, or you could even use a third party, and they could place you here so you don't have to deal with all the payroll. So Hmm. it could be a community-based organization that runs the program. You could imagine that 
you guys actually say in the next recession, hey, we want to participate in this program. You know, we have some work that we think is useful and meaningful. It may not be sufficiently productive that it's worth whatever is your lowest wage that you're, you're, you're paying, um, but the government could help offset part or all of that. And this subsidy could change over time. Typically, they're also going to give some uh, pre-placement services and support to so mm-hmm. prepare people as appropriate uh, for the work. And, you know, you'll want to limit it so this isn't the sort of thing that's abused by huge employers that don't really need it. And by and large, it's really small employers who tend to want to take advantage of these programs anyway. Yeah, so so that's that's the obvious question. It's like, how, how do you structure this so that it— It's the kind of thing that, on the one hand, like, it sounds nice, right? It's like everybody would rather spend money helping people— get jobs than, you know, having them be be impoverished or, or, or getting getting uh, just just checks. But also, like, h- how do you do it so that you're not, like, gaming the system too much or, you know, because yeah. pe- people don't want to just, like, hand money to companies for no reason. It's a great question. Uh, these programs have to be very carefully designed. Let's take the example of a company that, say, has 50 employees. Mm-hmm. You might limit them to only two placements. Um, it would start looking a little funny if they had 30 placements, for example, right? right. Like, wait a second, you're, you're substituting these workers for workers that you would have otherwise had. The goal is to incentivize some new jobs that are positions that wouldn't have otherwise created, in some cases, especially when the economy is sort of tanking, to keep hold on to some, and then obviously uh, encourage some people uh, to... Uh, work who might not have otherwise gotten a job offer. And so, you know, you target also some of the most disadvantaged workers. You obviously want to loosen these restrictions as the economy worsens Uh because then scale starts mattering a lot more than anything else, right? Every time you have one of these rules or restrictions, you're going to make a placement a little bit less likely. But you're going to also make your money sort of, uh, you know, in some ways – uh, better targeted. But all that kind of goes out the window when the economy deteriorates. Um, and then uh, what we've learned from folks who actually run these programs, you have site visits. You make sure they're actually being supervised. You time you you time limit the subsidy. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean that these workers couldn't switch to other jobs that are subsidized, but they can't necessarily stay with that employer. And then you can cut out the employers. This should never be an entitlement to employers. Right. So so your sort of vision for this is that the, the, the subsidized jobs would exist on a permanent basis, but the scope of the program could shift with the state of the economy, right? The subsidized jobs program would exist on a permanent basis. Right. Specific subsidized jobs wouldn't. In, in, sure, in sure. Right. So the idea is that instead of what we had with the emergency fund, which is like, holy shit, what yeah. are we going to do, that you would actually have time to create a program that, like, works and yeah. where you have offices and people are in charge of it. And and then it could just get bigger when you need it to. Yeah. I mean, just think I, I, about the metaphor of uh, the Recovery Act essentially basically putting out the fire rather than worrying about why the house mm-hmm. was burning down. We're asking uh, states and sometimes local governments and community-based organizations to build a house during that same situation, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. They should have the structure in place. They should be able to – and when I say structure, I mean you not only need the ability to sort of mechanically run the program. You need the relationships with the employers. You mm-hmm. need to know which ones you can trust, which ones you can't. You need to be able to basically dial up your employment services uh, so there's every reason to have these programs in place permanently, and then you're going to you're going to see a much more effective, basically scaling up and down as the economy uh, changes. Right, because basically you would have a pool of employers that you're working with that you think you know 
do a good job and that you can you can say, hey, we've got some extra slots, right? You know, we, we, we have more kind of need. And then, so you mentioned, you know, the possibility of working with nonprofits, working with the government, and working with sort of private for-profit employers. Can you walk through, like, what is the sort of uh, considerations around all those options? Yeah, that's great question. So, you know, first, of course, it's just what are the jobs available? It's different from one community to the next. Right. Secondly, we don't know this with certainty, but we tend to think from available research that the more you match someone to their actual long-term interests, the better the outcomes are going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to throw someone into being a, a homemaker if that's just not what they want to do. But the third thing is, you know, there's some research that suggests that you might see some longer-term labor market gains from some uh, for-profit private employers. That could be for lots of reasons that we don't fully understand. But um, this is based on meta-analyses, including from, um, you know, pretty trusted uh, labor uh, economists like David Card. But one of the challenges is in practice, the folks who are most willing to actually hire people in these situations is going to be local and state government and nonprofits. So I think there's no reason to sort of limit it. And we're uh, very clear in our sort of our proposals uh, uh, on which there are multiple uh, pieces of legislation in Congress that um, you need to be agnostic and be open to uh, various types of placements for different people. But so it's basically it's like, Local nonprofits are the places that probably have the highest uh, sort of uh, interest level, right, in, in doing something like this because that's their, that's their orientation. That's like what, what nonprofits are they're, – they're there to help. They may right? even be hiring people they serve in some cases and people they know. Exactly, right. So like they, they have the sort of greatest connection, but a lot of the research has, seems to indicate that an advantage of private placements is that – I mean I guess like most jobs are in the private sector, yeah. right? So gaining experience working in the private sector uh, appears to help people get like other jobs down the road in a way that's potentially sort of very useful. So that's like a – that's a good reason to have both. In your portfolio. Yeah, that's right. Of course. Now, I mean, look, if someone like wants to be like a social worker or a teacher, I'm not sure the private placement makes the most sense for sure. them, right? But I think that uh, we also – it would be nice to better understand why is that – is it just that – other private employers respect private, private, private experience. Is there something to the experience of working um, at a private employer that leads them to invest more in the training? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. You, you made a really important point. Most jobs are in the private sector. And I think even folks uh, like myself who support a very robust public sector, robust public options, in some cases, really the public sector stepping in and taking over some responsibilities of the private sector, you know, uh, I think we all uh, appreciate that a lot of the work that people might want to do is going to fall in the private sector. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't want to limit people uh, because uh, they have very low income and um, have to access a job through this program. I don't want to limit their options necessarily. Right. And so what kind of private employers are you talking about? Because you do say in the paper that we should maybe exclude sort of big employers to create a more sort of, I, I guess, mostly out of sort of fairness concerns, right? That you don't want the government cutting like giant annual checks to Walmart. Right. Well, I mean, look, just to be clear, even a lot of government services now are essentially contracted out. So let's just take Uh the example of being a home health aide. I mean, good luck actually being a public employee and being a home health aide. A lot of this is contracted to private employers. And so uh, that's an example. You know, folks do sometimes work uh, related to recycling or trash pickup, as well as uh, even potentially uh, work that 
you know, we think of as requiring more preparation um, in sort of like retail, uh, potentially even uh, some of the jobs that are available in construction. So there's really a lot of possibilities. Um, I think the way that uh, we think about it is we don't really fully know yet um, because we've never had a program at scale. Mm-hmm. I think once employers sort of learn about it and they see a potential need for it and or they see how they can sort of, you know, employers complain a lot in America about um, the preparation of the workforce, but they kind of, you know, don't really invest in it themselves. And when they do, they invest in like the most educated workers. So like lawyers and doctors and consultants and accountants get the most training. Um, And so maybe this is one of the ways to get them to start spending more on building that talent pipeline that they obviously need. Wait, I mean, that would be the sort of like, like the most optimistic hope of this, I think would be, will you actually sort of change the the broader dynamic where you get at least a certain set of employers used to the idea of, okay, I'm going to take people on who really need a lot of help. I'm going to get a subsidy to do it. I'm going to train them up. And like, this is going to be like my future business model, right? I'm going to have access now on a sort of ongoing basis to a talent pipeline that I can really use. And this is like something my company is good at. Right. It's like taking these people and and training them up. And it's a it's a real source of competitive advantage. Yeah, I think that's right. So long as they're obviously not, you know, using those hires to replace people they would have right. you know, hired in, at competitive salaries in the first place without subsidies and or obviously undermining union or collective bargaining agreements. But, you know, what's striking is, uh, you know, there are examples of, of work like this and. You just really see them across so many different sectors. You know, the key often, I think, seems to be like some employers committed to the community. Mm -hmm. That's really it in many ways. Um, And I don't think uh, any of them uh, have, you know, from surveys ever sort of regretted it or thought it was a a mistake. I think that uh, we know how to do this. We know how to do this well. And there's absolutely no reason why we can't uh, get on with it and be ready um, for the inevitable next recession by ramping up some of these programs right now. I mean, there are communities right now that are devastated. I mean, Puerto Rico, after Mm -hmm. the hurricane, um, there's a lot that needs to happen. This is not a silver bullet, but uh, there's no reason why this shouldn't be part of the solution right now. So what what kind of money are we talking about for for your your idea here? Yeah, I mean, these programs can be ratcheted up and down, of course, but— I think that there are versions of this that cost as uh, little as the TANF programs, federal spending, which is a little over $16 billion a year. And, you know, I'm just proposing a counter-cyclical sort of component mm-hmm. of it where the subsidized jobs part is ongoing because you need that infrastructure, um, but the cash assistance isn't necessarily. Um, so that can be even less, like $10 billion or less. Um, but there are versions of this uh, that can cost uh, closer to $100 billion or more. All of this, uh, just to put things into perspective, um, are really just a fraction of the size of a $20 trillion a year economy. They're unquestionably affordable and uh, in some cases uh, might even pay for themselves, as we've seen with some of the subsidized jobs models from the 90s. But look, we don't even need that to happen. Um, we we really do, in many cases, just need to help people meet their needs and they often want work and they, in our country, in our society, you might get a lot of dignity through work. And I think that uh, this is a great opportunity to get people connected to meaningful work and you get the value of what they produce. You might stabilize their family, help stabilize the communities, and you're you're just getting money out the door that you need to get out the door precisely the people who are most likely to spend it. Yeah, let's take our second break and then I want to sort of talk about those kind of like different circles of benefit here. 
there's like a, a lot of different stuff kind of kind of going on here. Um, and and sort of there's a broad economic picture. But, but I do want to talk about specifically just the benefits of getting more money to people who are in need. Uh, because, you know, we, we started out talking a little bit about TANF and how it works or, or really doesn't work. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty dire situation uh, at the sort of low end of, of the American economy right now. America, by all accounts, has among the highest rates of child poverty and poverty in general. We have conditions that uh, really people would who are not already living it or near it or familiar with it might not recognize as America uh, to this day. And I think uh, a meaningful reason w- why we are in this situation is that we have gutted our cash assistance system, um, in part motivated by race. Right. And, and I mean, this is uh, th- there's, a, there's a lot of different ways you can sort of get at remedying this situation. But obviously, right, I mean, if you go back at the original TANF block grant, whatever you think of of the old AFTC and the changes that were being made there, taking a program and just capping it in nominal terms and never changing it for decades and decades, like that doesn't work. That doesn't make any kind of sense, right? And it's just never been revisited. And then the structure on the state side really allows, but it, it sort of encourages states to, like, take money out of basic assistance to, to the neediest people. That's right. I mean, what a block grant is in this case is flexibility without accountability. Uh, states really can plug budget holes. I mean, arguably, they've used it to literally cut taxes um, because they have very little that they're held to account for. No one should be surprised. It's not that st- states were just allowed to do this. They were almost encouraged to do this. This is among the most flexible pots of money that they get. Right. And so, like, on a most basic level, we're just, like, we're helping some people who are in very poor economic conditions. You also made reference to the fact that there's there's indication that this will have, like, real benefits for, for children. And can, can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, obviously, like, in general, it's nice to have kids not suffering in dire poverty, um, you know, basic humane grounds. But, like, what, what do we know about the sort of longer-term impact of that? Well, we have increasingly very good reason uh, to be confident that just getting money really in any form, but, uh, you know, the more that it's closer to cash, I think the better in many cases, uh, to people with very low incomes uh, makes a huge difference. Um, that doesn't mean that's the answer to all of our problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the right way to meet our childcare need or housing need is probably not just cutting checks to people. It's mm-hmm. probably developing a real childcare infrastructure and, you know, investing properly in affordable housing. Um, but when we're talking about incomes that are so low, we're talking about a family of four with uh, less than $11,000 a year Mm-hmm. Uh, there's really nowhere in America where that's doable in any way whatsoever. So when you get money to kids, especially in those families, you see in the research long-term gains for them. Um, so uh, arguably, uh, really what you're doing is you are increasing mobility, expanding opportunity. And in particular with subsidized jobs, we saw a really neat experiment. So in the 1990s, there was something called the New Hope Project. Mm-hmm. And the New Hope Project essentially said, hey, 
what if we really took seriously this thing that we believe about if you work, uh, you shouldn't be poor? Mm-hmm. Um, and they tried to put it into place in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And you did see some gains even eight years later, which is a pretty long time to follow up after a strategy like this has been tested out um, for the adults, for the parents. But what was most remarkable was the gains for just the boys in the families who really had no direct intervention, but their parents got these jobs mm-hmm. and ch- uh, childcare is needed and health insurance as needed. And the gains were so substantial in in um, sort of how the boys sort of change in their development that researchers estimate that it would have probably many times over entirely paid for the program by reducing interaction with the justice system. So you're talking about you know, the kids' uh, better educational attainment, less incarceration, lo- lower arrest rates. Is that that the kind of impacts we're, we're talking yeah. about here? And and you can see it in even during the school age years, right? Exactly. Um, and so I think what we need to really take seriously in this country is that some people are in such dire straits that uh, yes, the answer is just throwing some money at the problem mm-hmm. and um, a job even better in some cases if it's decent um, and uh, it's doable, right? So like in this case, the job c- came also with as needed childcare support. Um, it's uh, it's almost um, cruel to offer people work and then not offer them the sort of childcare support they would need to take on the work. Right. I mean, this is saying, right, you see this sentiment in this push at at state levels to say, well, we're going to have work requirements on Medicaid. And, you know, as we've talked about in in, in other shows focused on that, it doesn't – there's just no – evidence that that kind of thing increases employment, that you don't you don't have some huge pool of low-income people who, like, could go get a job tomorrow, and they're just not doing it because they're stubborn. Right? And then not only that, we should see, uh, if you look really closely at what we do know from these sorts of get people into the job mm-hmm. as soon as possible approaches, um, wherever you see any increase at all, it's really small, and it almost certainly— makes the workers worse off in the long run. Right. It, it, getting the very first job is not advice anyone really would give anyone else. Uh, you need to ideally search around. And what's one of the great strengths of unemployment insurance when you have access to it, which these workers by and large don't, is that it can actually help you afford a better job search, right? Right. And I mean, this is there's there's some great research on this. I, I saw a good an Austrian-based paper. But yeah, it's like if you give people unemployment insurance, it means they don't need to take the very first vacancy that comes along uh, under threat of starvation. And then they can and find a job that, like, they're actually going to be good at. Right. You know, uh, I, I sort of refer to folks who worry about these sorts of uh, economic security programs incentivizing sort of behavior that they think is, you know, unhelpful as moral hazard fundamentalists because that's mm-hmm. sort of what they are. I mean, yeah, there's some there's some effect where maybe people say, I'm going to stay unemployed longer. But what we find out is a huge chunk of what's going on here is not something that we would refer to as moral hazard, but rather folks are just, they're, they're cash-strapped. Mm-hmm. They don't have the resources to finance the appropriate job search, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, economists would call it liquidity constrained, but the truth is we know, right, from Federal Reserve research that, you know, about two in five American households would struggle with a $400 emergency, right? right? They'd have to borrow or sell something, which is often quite impractical. And so these programs really allow people to make much better decisions. Right. So the point here is that all this stuff, all this this thought that, you know, more conservative people might have that like, well, it's 
people need to get jobs. It's good to be in work. I mean, that's not wrong, right? The, the benefits of, of increased employment are very, very real, but you need to spend some money, right? You need to take these barriers seriously. And you can get uh, what we saw, at least for, for, from that 90s research, right, was like really big benefits to, to families and children. And then in the recession context, we're talking about benefits uh, that sort of spill over into the community, right? It's when if a huge number of people in town lose their jobs, then nobody's going to be able to go to the store, and then everybody else starts sort of losing their jobs, right? That's right. And it's so obvious, right? When a big employer, say, for example, you know, goes under or shifts the location of a facility, what happens to suppliers? Mm -hmm. And human beings are working at all these places, no matter how many robots they have now. But, you know, the reality is that um, that means that school finances are going to be undermined, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, you can see the knock-on effects. And this is uh, how you can see communities just sort of, you know, spiral into their own recessions. Um, A lot of people forget, but Michigan was essentially experiencing a recession for years and years before the Great Recession hit. Um, And I, I think that one of the things that we really uh, focus on in our work is uh, emphasizing that uh, sort of diversity of actual economic experiences. So uh, as soon as something, you know, really bad hits a community, um, you can pretty much expect um, in many cases that you're going to see a lot of collateral damage. Right. And because we have an economy, the modern economy, such a large share of people do essentially locally based service work, right, compared to how, how it has been in the past. And that means in, in some ways that we're more um, – in some ways it means there's less economic differentiation from place to place, but it also means that we are very vulnerable in our communities to localized shocks to those sort of big employers because what most of us are doing is just we're doing stuff for each other, right? That's so, right. We're, we're, we're wildly interdependent, and that means on the one hand we're much more vulnerable to – uh, the harms that others experience. The flip side of that is we can easily collectively solve these problems. Mm-hmm. Um, that unfortunately takes this process that um, is much harder than and more time consuming um, and requires certain politics. But you're exactly right. I think especially the service economy uh, today means that we're very, very interdependent at a sort of local community level. Right. Should talk a little bit about the sort of benefits of cash, right? Because we've really sort of biased the system toward in-kind services now. And it's like, I mean, I guess it's like a paranoia that like somebody's going to use their money on a pack of cigarettes. But that same flexibility is is really, really useful, right? I mean, so so much stuff can sort of fall in in the cracks of, you know, it's not healthcare, it's not housing voucher, it's it's not food stamps. But like people need stuff, right? People need toothpaste. They need tampons. They need diapers. Anywhere you look at the state and local level for a push to exempt something from a sales tax, Mm -hmm. I can pretty much assure you, since food is largely exempt if you buy at the grocery store already, I I can pretty much assure you that's the sort of stuff that we are struggling to buy when we have low incomes. Uh, because we don't offer much cash assistance, right? We really somewhat stand out uh, in that sense. 
I think that uh, we, in some ways, have undermined the freedom of people uh, when they have low incomes. And I just want to emphasize something that uh, it's not really that we have many folks who sort of have a lifelong of low incomes. You know, people cycle somewhat in and out, not necessarily to much higher incomes, but, you know, from being deeply poor to just being poor or just having mm-hmm. low income. Um, but that's important because I think we often think people are a lot different than us. But a lot of what's going on is just things happen in life, right? So um, even the perfect childhood doesn't necessarily protect you from domestic or intimate partner violence. It doesn't protect you from mental health illness. And, and it doesn't necessarily protect you from disability. Um, I mean, all those things might be less likely, but um, life happens and you need cash in those situations. You know, a car accident alone can be enough for, um, you know, figuratively the wheels to sort of come off on a family's finances. Yeah, and it's just hard to predict. I mean, I know there's been some bills in Congress to, like, create a diaper program, you know, because that's not covered by existing food stamps. And, you know, that sounds good, right? But it's like trying to think, trying to have people sit in Washington and think about, well, what's every category of, like, reasonable expenditure for people? It just doesn't—it doesn't really work. It's like life is more complicated than that, right? I mean, like, I I know, you know, a family—I know my my community, and, you know, they they had a a kid, and he had actually a bunch of hand-me-down pants, right? Uh, Which was good. That's, like, a great way to save money. But they were, like, a little too big for him. And so, like, what he needed was a belt, right? And he would never have, like, a federal program to get belts, that's right. Right. But it's like with a little bit of money, they could get something that would let them stretch the available resources much further and just like go to school, you know, like with a happy face. Right. right? Like, I'm OK. I've got, you know, it's such a such a small sort of basic thing and so obvious. Right. And it's just like when you have money, you can identify what's valuable and go get it. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, people in some ways understand that a lot of uh, political fights are fundamentally about power. Um, But one of the forms of power that are essential in a sort of mixed market economy like we have is purchasing power. Mm -hmm. Uh, And people really need uh, to be able to have that flexibility of not necessarily buying the the thing that policymakers have approved um, and uh, being able to address emergencies as they come up. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we don't have universal needs like housing and healthcare, as we've already discussed, and even caregiving. And we can certainly address those through other ways. But, you know, day-to-day life in a, a country uh, like ours, you, you're not really going to barter your way through it. Um, right. Yeah, you need cash. Yeah, and, you know, some of these things, right? I mean, healthcare, probably childcare, there is a real efficiency to a sort of public provision, right? But so much of what we need, right, precisely because, like, a a market economy is good, right? Like, it's a much better way to get ordinary consumer goods is to, like, have money and go to the store. Yeah, I mean, I just think that uh, there's a lot of things that uh, government does well and needs to do more of, and uh, that's things like insurance functions. Mm -hmm. Um, And and certainly, uh, you know, when you have a situation like caregiving where you have the worst of all worlds where you got low pay and no one can afford it, um, so the work is— terrible uh, for so many people and the people who need it can't afford it. You need public investments, no doubt. And there you can think about exactly the provision of it. But yeah, for people to just buy things that they need day to day in a country where, you know, you don't have public transit for like, you know, 90% of the country has no meaningful access to public transit. So just think about just 
the transportation and mm-hmm. like your car. Um, right. What's our program to help people with that? Right. We got we got nothing. And is the right answer possibly going to be uh, entirely in kind? It seems unlikely. Like right. you want to get get people the money to be able to make the right decisions right. Um, that are the best for them and their community and make informal arrangements. Right. I mean, like maybe the solution is you give a little money to a neighbor and they give you a ride. Exactly. Right? And like you're not going to have a program for that. Right. But you can have a program to give people money. Right. And you don't need a you don't need a program for that. You don't want, I mean, right. you shouldn't People want can work it out, yeah. right, if they have some research. So uh, hanging over all this, right, is the sort of uh, specter of the racial politics of welfare from the early 1990s, right? I think there was a perception that you can't be giving money to unmarried, not working mothers, that they are violating the, the basic framework of the social code and that if they don't look like us, that it's it's unacceptable, right? And, and that, you know, so you had Democrats move toward TANF and these very harsh measures and then say, okay, well, we're going to put the money in in-kind assistance and in uh, these sort of, um, you know, tax credits that people really only get if they're working full time. And do you think, have things changed politically that, you know, makes this possible or are we up against the same wall? Look, in some ways we're up against the same wall in the sense that it's still a very racialized conversation. The difference is probably just the number. So now there's enough people who think that, uh, you know, that sort of, uh, you know, frankly, racism is a bad thing. Um, I'm not sure there were enough back then. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, look, to this day, states that have the highest African-American share populations, according to research from the Urban Institute, still tend to have the least generous TANF programs. Mm -hmm. That is uh, I assure you, not a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, a couple of election cycles ago, if anyone can remember that far back, Mitt Romney ran attack ads critiquing President Obama for a very soft waiver proposal that would have given states, and it was requested by Republican states, mm-hmm. some flexibility around these so-called work requirements mm-hmm. um, that are incredibly poorly designed in TANF. And Romney sort of savaged Obama uh, for this in attack ads. It might have been too little too late, but the research on it suggested that it did racialize people's views of the two candidates. But here was the kicker. It, while it racialized people's views, it didn't have any net effect because there were enough people who were pissed off by the hmm. racism <laughs> that to kind of offset the people who uh, basically aligned themselves with it. Mm-hmm. So maybe the politics have changed in that sense and we can finally move forward and stop judging people for their economic circumstances, which in many ways are really our collective fault um, in some cases because of uh, decisions all the way back to slavery and really before that. The, the sort of subsidized job element is at least in part an effort to – I don't want to say, like, answer the work requirements, but to to fulfill some of that impulse, right? That, like, we we should help people get jobs instead of, like, yelling at them and blaming them for, for being unemployed. One of the most frustrating things about these so-called work requirements that have been cropping up, although lately, fortunately, cropping back down, is the assumption that people don't already want to do this, that they aren't mm-hmm. already trying. Um, and subsidized jobs is all about empowering people and helping them do what they want to do. Uh, look, by and large, people want to work. We know that. Uh, work requirements are doing much more to stand in the way than to support it. Something like subsidized jobs really helps us start moving toward meaningful jobs for everyone who wants one. And they were uh, really around way before work requirements in some sense. 
in another sense, you can certainly think about all of our social insurance programs, even our working family tax rates. They're all contingent on work, as you said at right. the beginning of the show. It's been decades since we've had any indication that there's like a shortage of people who are willing to to go work, right? Like there's no there's no wage inflation in, in the labor market. There's I mean, obviously employers will say, like, oh, I want to hire like 80 million trained aerospace engineers and pay them eleven dollars an hour. <laughs> and and I can't. Uh, but like every time we have an opportunity for people to get entry level work, like they sign up. That's right. Um, Look, our employment to population ratios are nowhere near sort of peaks. Our labor force participation rates are not. Uh, Matt, you pointed out earlier about folks who are essentially marginalized or discouraged workers, right? Part-time for economic reasons. Stop looking because Mm -hmm. they're discouraged. And some of it is we've trapped them, right? We've trapped people through our immigration laws and system. We've trapped people through our justice system, and we've made it just so hard to impossible. So we're nowhere near uh, a situation where there aren't enough uh, folks who are willing to work, but, you know, a better education system, better workforce development system, better higher ed would make sure that they're prepared, and then uh, they should be paid commensurately. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk about criminal justice because we've been talking about this in the context of TANF. And so that's a program that targets uh, primarily uh, custodial parents of young kids. It seems like a really natural sort of target population for subsidized jobs is reentering offenders because that's such a— like society on the one hand, right, like we want people who get out of jail to go work. And at the same time, people, very understandably, their first choice of employee is not like the guy who got out of jail yesterday. So there's an obvious role for the government to step in and help connect ex-offenders with employers who, you know, like want to do that, help out on both sides with with financial assistance. But that doesn't seem um, like the populations quite match up. Yeah. So first, yeah, we've done a lot in recent years, especially uh, to essentially demonstrate that subsidized jobs can work for people who are formerly incarcerated. And uh, I think with some promising success, especially on reducing recidivism, and there's still a lot more to do. Um, But the TANF population uh, can um, extend a little bit beyond the typical vision of single mothers um, and can be stretched a little bit, enough to potentially include um, some other folks who are non-custodial parents Mm -hmm. of kids maybe in those families. And, you know, uh, I certainly recommend in my proposal that we be creative. But there's... Uh, At the end of the day, a real case to be made for a bigger standalone national subsidized jobs programs. And Mm -hmm. we've seen it in multiple bills from the Job Opportunities for All Act by Representative Rokana, the Elevate Act by Senator Wyden and others, and also the Long-Term Unemployment Elimination Act by Senator Chris Van Hollen and others. um, Trying to stand up uh, national subsidized jobs programs since we don't have one in part outside of any existing program for the reason you laid out. There's a lot of populations you might want to reach who aren't really going to be as well reached by TANF. Because the recidivism issue here basically is if people have no means of supporting themselves, then they're going to commit more crimes, right? I mean— I mean, I think the I think I'd add about that is a lot of recidivism is that we're surveilling the crap out of people once they come out. And uh-huh. so, you know, they have to check in at certain times. They have to report certain things. Um, so when we say recidivism, it's not like they're doing the same thing necessarily again. It's that they have a violation or something. Okay, right? so but, right. It's like if I was yeah. on parole, you might catch me uh, t- 
doing more stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, exactly. Unfortunately, I know this from personal experience, but um, you know, we have a we we basically set up a surveillance state for you know people who are disproportionately black and brown, but like people who have very low incomes and people who have been found to have committed crimes. So I think that's part of it. But um, yeah, of course, uh, you're going to have means to support your family. You're going to have ways to spend your time constructively if someone's willing to give you a job. And that's like the only like viable solution, right? I mean, is people need to be able to get legitimate work. That's right. And only in a very hot labor market are ex-offenders going to be, like, desirable in, a, in an unconstrained market. Yeah, I think people who are formerly incarcerated face a lot of barriers to housing and credit markets, but jobs are going to be the number one thing uh, if you could do anything that would make a big difference. You know, we also restrict access to use of Pell Grants, not only for folks in prison, but if you have specific drug felony convictions, you know, it's fine if it was rape or murder, but if it was these drug felony convictions, we'll restrict your access to financial aid. Boy, all right, well, that's, <laughs> that could be that could be a whole uh, other hour. Um, but but before I let you go, I, I do like to ask people, uh, you know, what, what what should I have asked you here? What what did I miss in this conversation? I like to think about subsidized jobs as part of a broader framework. So, uh, you know, if you'd ask me, how does this fit into a broader agenda to ensure everyone gets decent jobs? Um, here's what I would have said. Here we go. <laughs> how, how does this fit into a broader framework? I would say, first and foremost, we need to look at what our national needs are. Caregiving, physical infrastructure, climate, energy, conservation, environment. And we need to directly um, figure out those levers. We already have levers in a lot of these spaces, policy levers to create those jobs and create those jobs. Those jobs should look and feel like every other job. Mm -hmm. you, sh you wouldn't even know necessarily. So for example, say we need a lot more K through 12 teachers in this mm -hmm. country. It's not like someone's going to know that they're funded through some policy lever and someone's funded through another policy lever. Mm -hmm. We're just going to inject more money and make sure it leads to the good jobs that we need. The second thing I would do is a robust subsidized jobs program. This uh, sort of blends what we just talked about, meeting needs, hopefully national needs, but also, you know, just helping people get jobs. And then there'll be some people for whom I think, you know, the answer might be just a pure public employment option where the goal isn't necessarily to get people into stronger foothold in the labor market or long-term gains. Um, there are plenty of people's and people in their 50s and even 60s who need work and want to work, and they're not trying to necessarily experience upward economic mobility or anything like that, but they need some money and they, they want a job. Right. Um, and, you know, we, we've done things like Senior uh, Community Service Corps, and we could do more robust uh, public employment option there. But I think you really need to do all of this. And remember, all of this only works if you have compliant and supportive Federal Reserve monetary policy, exchange uh, trade policy, and certainly regulatory policy. Sure, but I mean, it's, it's part of like a like a seamless approach to yeah. a, to a real full employment. That's right? exactly right. And, and so that involves like transitional assistance and also some kind of backstop in in public employment, along with basic macroeconomics, uh, all, all the rest. And it should hopefully be some kind of useful useful feedback. I think that's exactly right. And I just think that uh, you know. The way I always tell people to think about this is that, uh, you know, what we're suffering from essentially is, is lots of inequalities everywhere. And they're everywhere. And I don't think you're going to answer it with one answer or even two answers. You're going to have to answer it everywhere. So we need to think about wherever it shows up and especially in our economy. We see it throughout the labor market and we need to address it every step of the way. Thank you so much. Indy Dedegupta, Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality. Uh, thanks to Malachi Brodus, uh, our engineer here, uh, Jackson Bierfeldt, uh, producing this episode. Uh, and The Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you.